So here's kind of the point tonight. There really are few things worse than a bad marriage. There really are few things worse than a bad marriage. Okay? Um, And and that's really what the heart of Paul's uh, point is here in Romans chapter 6. He starts out with an analogy of one master and a slave and a different master and how that changes things. But then he moves into a marriage metaphor. And the marriage metaphor at the beginning of chapter 7 is one that people often just kind of pass over. Tim Keller says it's really one of the most important things to understand to really get the point that Paul's trying to make about the gospel. And I think I would say that too, because having worked at Belmont for 27 years, so many of the students that come to RUF at least have some kind of Christian background, some experience with church or youth group or, or, or something. And for so many, they tend to think of Christianity as kind of like a tit-for-tat relationship with God, where you do the right things and then you get blessings. Or if you toe the line, then your life will go better. And um, it, it, the idea... That, that we're God's little worker bees seems to be like what so many people think of as the point of the Christian life. Uh, I've heard it said, save to serve, for instance, that kind of language. Um, in reality, the whole theme of the Bible is really about God making a covenant with his people. A covenant is a living life bond. It really is marriage. And that passage we read in Isaiah 54, your maker is your husband. I tell people that if you want one verse to understand what Christianity is all about, that that's, gets my vote, that verse. Um, and I think it corrects a lot of the misunderstandings that I think people who've grown up in Christian churches have. Um, we tend to think of God as one or the other. Either we think of him as the one who just loves us so much, but he doesn't really care that much how we live. That would be to say, he's our husband. Awesome, just sit in that. And then other people are like, well, he made you, and you better live in accordance with the way he made you, dang it. Um, That's kind of the other side of things. But to understand that the one who made you and said, this is what I made you for, is the one who loves you passionately and would rather die than live without you. Your maker is your husband is really at the heart of what Christianity is about. And that's what Paul is talking about here. So we're going to pick up in chapter 6, verse 12. Paul has been talking about sanctification, about not how can we become beautiful in God's sight, but how can we actually be transformed and become beautiful in actuality? Because one of the things that sin does, it makes us guilty in God's sight, but it also dehumanizes us and makes us broken in so many ways. And the gospel is not just about changing how you look in God's sight, though it does that and it does it perfectly. It's also about changing you. The gospel, as Paul said way back in chapter one of Romans, is the power of God unto salvation For those who believe. And here he's going to be talking about that again. So follow along as I read, starting at verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life 
and your members, that means the parts of your body, to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification, holiness. For when you were slaves of sin... You were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, or its goal, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, She will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is still alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brethren, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Let me pray. Lord, we do thank you for your holy, inerrant word, and we pray you'd help us to understand, to see beautiful things in your law. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I said, this little passage that we're going to look at tonight breaks down into two points. First, he talks about how we have a new master. But then he says, even better than that, we have a new husband. And there are points to be brought out of both of these things. But notice, um, if you've been tracking with us, chapter 6, verse 1, what we looked at last week, He says the same thing that he says here in verse 15. So he's still continuing this idea, what shall we say then? If grace is really that big and that good, why don't we just sin even more? He brings up the same 
question, the same anticipated objection. Paul, what you're saying is destroying, cutting the feet out from fear as a motivation to live the Christian life. And what other motivation is there? How else are we going to keep snotty-nosed little kids from doing all kinds of crazy stuff if they're not afraid of God? That's basically what he's saying. And he says, that's ridiculous. If you think that way, you show you don't understand the first thing about the heart of God. And chances are you actually aren't married to him. Because if you were really married to him, you would never think about, well, what can I get away with? You would think, how can I bring joy to the heart of the one who loves me so much, right? It's like people that are always like, well, you know, how far can you go on a date? Like, where's that line? And whenever people ask that question, you're like, okay, you're not actually asking the question you should ask, which is what would honor the heart of God and honor this other person made in his image and honor yourself? You're asking, how far can I go before I cross a line? And that shows that we've missed the point, usually, in those kind of arguments. Paul is saying, you've been married to Christ, and that changes everything. But he starts with this slave-master analogy. So let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, There are two masters here that are contrasted. Uh, And here's the point. The change that happens with conversion is huge. I know there are whole swaths of the Christian church that always want to talk about people making decisions for Christ. But the Bible never really talks about it that way. Because conversion is much bigger than just making a decision. It affects everything. It affects your sense of what's beautiful, of what is good and right. It changes your passions. It changes everything. Now, I'm not saying decisions aren't part of it. But I don't want to talk about decisions because Paul wants to talk about conversion. And how you have been brought from one kingdom to another, how you had one master and now you have another. It's a much bigger deal than just you hearing some ideas and then changing your mind about them. Conversion is more than changing your mind. Okay? So he, he, he talks about the origin of each of these um, kind of ways of living. The first is, it's all in verse 17 here. Um, He says, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin. So that was our old master. We were slaves to sin. While we had choices about what we could do, everything was tainted with sin. There was no way that we could do anything purely out of love for God because our hearts were turned against him. Even things that looked like good things were often done for the wrong motives, okay? But he says now everything has changed, right? And you see that with the tense. You were once slaves of sin, verse 17. You've now become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. That's a great way of thinking about conversion. What is conversion? What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, he says that the conversion has to come from the heart. It's more than just intellectually changing your mind about some ideas. It caused us to obey from the heart which means that it penetrates the heart and actually changes the way you live. He says that it involved a form of teaching or a standard of teaching, which means that there's actually a body of truth that matters. The gospel is good news. It's news about something that actually happened. And committing yourself, transferring your trust from what you've done to what God did is at the heart of conversion, right? 
there's a specific message with actual content, and not everybody agrees with it. Not even everybody that says they're a Christian, I'll just say. And then finally, where does he give the credit? Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that you did all this. Because he is the one who changed your heart, opened your eyes to see Jesus as beautiful, more beautiful and believable than all those other things that you were running after, and drew you to himself. Go read John chapter 6. Jesus says, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. Right? And so thanks be to God. And then he goes on and he talks about, so the origin is completely different. Your origin, your whole origin story is different now. You know, I, I think I've mentioned this before, the importance of origin stories in the comic book world. This is your origin story. This is your origin story, and you should live out of it. If you try to, to, to you forget your origin story, you're usually in deep, deep weeds, right? And the same is true for Christians. Um, but then he also talks about the development, and whichever one we serve is going to proceed and advance in our hearts and our lives. And you see that. Look at verse 19, the, the, the end part of that. He says, just as you once presented your members, that means the parts of your body as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So he's talking about two completely different ways of living. When you give yourself over to a master of sorts, it goes down that road and you keep going farther and farther down that Road is what he's saying. I like this line from C.S. Lewis. He says, perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse. So gradually that the increase in 70 years will not be very noticeable. But it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is the precisely correct technical term for what it would be. You're going one direction or another. You are serving a master. Jesus talked about this. You can't serve two masters. You're serving a master. Which one? And then the results. <laughs> Either death is reaped or harvested or holiness or eternal life. That's down in verse 22 and 23, right? The fruit that leads to holiness and its end or its goal, eternal life. So there's an actual destination as well. Now, I, I think what's interesting is this, this thing that Tim Keller points out about what does Paul mean here when he talks about death? Uh, he, he, here in verse 21, he says, but what fruit are you, were you getting before you were a Christian at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed for the end or the goal of those things is death? Yes, but it also, the death even begins to impact your life here and now. This is the way Tim Keller explains it. How does sin bring death? Paul is talking of a death that these Christians used to experience. He's not talking about if you hadn't been converted, you would have died. He's saying you were already experiencing death because that was the goal of your old master. So he is referring to brokenness of life. And here's how it works. If you don't obey the law of God, you become a slave to selfishness, lust, bitterness, pride, materialism, worry, drivenness, fear. Whatever enslaving sin depends on the particular bottom line besides God that you've offered yourself to. 
Let me explain an example. If you're enslaved to people's approval, you will constantly experience self-pity, envy, hurt feelings, inadequacy. If you're enslaved to success, you'll experience drivenness, fatigue, worry, and fear, so on and so on. But people who offer themselves in obedience to what God says you were made for grow in the fruit of the Spirit. And anyone who is awash in love, joy, self-control, kindness, etc., experiences a kind of liberty, not death. Now, I talked about the first chapter of chapter 6. It's a little more complicated than that because death is still at work in our members, right? And remember I said one of the ways that you know you're a Christian is you've been set free to struggle in ways that you never did before. And actually the rest of Romans 7 doesn't talk about that, so I'm going to postpone and talk about that more next week because that really is the heart of Romans 7, okay? But Paul says this master-slave analogy, it's helpful, it's good to talk about, but the real heart of this chapter and the real heart of what I want to talk about tonight is about the marriage metaphor. And like I said, it's one that people sometimes skip over, and that is tragic. But the question, of course, is how can we be married to Christ? We're already married to Adam. And the answer is because death has annulled our first marriage. Now, he's actually saying the same thing two different ways in the first section that we read and the second section. Because if you look at chapter 6, look at verse 14. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. And then look at down at chapter 7, verse 4. Likewise, my brethren, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to one another who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. He's saying the same thing, that you used to belong to one and that controlled everything about how you live, but now you belong to someone else. The slave-master metaphor is helpful in some ways, but the even better metaphor is this one, marriage, right? We die to the law, he says, so that we might belong to one another. In verse 14 of 6, he says we died to the law, but in chapter 7, he goes a little farther and says we died to the law so that we could belong to one another. In other words, we died to the law, that means we're no longer under it, under its authority. It no longer dictates who we are or controls us. And so what Paul is saying here is to be under the law is the same thing as to be married to the law. Okay, what, what, let, me, let me kind of dig into this a little bit. In, in chapter 7, verse 4, he says that we died to the law through the body of Christ. So our relationship with the law has been changed because we died with Christ. Remember I talked about union with Christ, that when Christ died, all of his people died with him, and when he was raised to new life, all of his people were raised with him. So it is true to say that if you're a Christian, you died with Christ and you've been raised with Christ. That's true, whether you feel like it or not. And when you died with Christ, 
You died to the law. That means the legal relationship you had to the law was dissolved. The marriage no longer exists. John Colquhoun, great Scottish name, isn't it? John Colquhoun. Um, he, a uh, guy lived back in the 1800s, wrote a great book about this. And he says that we're no, un- no longer under the law as a commanding authority. We're no longer under the law as a condemning authority. We're no longer under the law as a justifying or rewarding authority. It doesn't get to do that anymore. And we're no longer under the law as a frustrating or irritating authority. It can't like pick at us and say, you really should do this and you really should do that. The law has no more legal relationship with us. We died to the law. The law no longer can command that we do this so that we can live. The the law can no longer say, you didn't do what you're supposed to do, therefore you should die. The law no longer can promise you rewards if you obey. It can no longer stir up sin and pick at you and make you rage against God's holy law. Why? Because being divorced from the law and married to Jesus changes everything. But sometimes we still run back to our old husband, right? There's this legalistic heart that's still in us, even though we're no longer under the dominion of the law. The law, to be under the dominion of the law means that you are counting on your obedience to the law for what God thinks about you. And if if you go down that path, you better do it perfectly because the law has no forgiveness. And if you want to base your life upon what you can do to impress God, you have chosen a path of absolute bondage. But even when Christ comes and kills us in the gospel so that we're no longer married to the law, we still want to run back to it. We still run back to it. John Colquhoun puts it this way. The redeemed of the Lord should no more expect eternal life for their own works than a widow would hope for favors and comforts from a dead husband. They are no more exposed to the curses of the broken law than a widow is to the threats of a husband who's lying in the grave. The law can no longer condemn you. Because you no longer have a relationship with the law to where it can condemn you or, can, or tell you this is how you're supposed to live. Yet I said we still feel enslaved to the law like an abusive marriage. It's really hard to break out of an abusive marriage. It's dehumanizing. I was thinking about this. One of my absolute favorite songwriters. Anybody know Patty Griffin's music? Yeah, she's going to go on tour, I see, with the Dixie Chicks. Or they're the Chicks now. Um, this summer, but they're not coming to Nashville. I don't know. Anyway, well, from her second record, um, which I love, Flaming Red, is this song. Um, basically, her first couple records were about her getting out of a, just a really bad marriage and kind of waking up to the reality of what was going on. This song, Change, I think is so powerful. And think about this, not just about you know, abusive relationships, which I hope this won't be triggering because I know that that may be the story of some of y'all. But I, I, I think 
it's really helpful to think about the way we run back to the law as well and the way when you're married to the law, it dehumanizes you like any bad marriage. She says this, dog comes howling up behind you, sinks his teeth in your leg, tells you how now things are going to be a little different, and he takes you down a peg. You make him ashamed for you, he buys you a new dress, because you make him ashamed for you, and he'd like you to look your best. So you change. Oh, oh, you change. So you change, and the dog bites down a little harder. Last verse says this, man said, woman, I'm a little tired of you. And she said, don't leave me, baby. I'll do anything you want me to do. And he said, can't you do anything about the mess around this place? She said, anything, baby, anything. I'll cover my face. So you make him ashamed for you and he buys you a new dress. You make him ashamed for you in your nakedness. So you change. So you change. So you change. And the dog bites down a little harder. This is a powerful song. If you don't know that song, I encourage you. It's called Change. And, and, but it's, it's not just true about relationships with other people. It's true about our relationship with the law. The more, the more you try to do the right things, the more you feel how far you are from what you should be. And sometimes you just throw up your hand and say, I just don't give a crap anymore dehumanizing. The law is dehumanizing because God made you to bask in his approval. He made you to be married to someone who looks at you and just is goo-goo over you. That's what you were made for. The law will never do that. The law will always say, no, you need to try a little harder. You didn't quite, you didn't quite measure up. I know you tried, but you didn't really measure up. God does not speak that way. He doesn't speak that way, right? Understanding this relationship with Jesus through the marriage metaphor is so important, guys. It's so important. Let me draw out a few of the implications. As I said, it really is the heart of the gospel, right? Here's what it means to be a Christian. It means that God put our first marriage to death by putting the law, this is Colossians chapter 2, that Jesus took the law that stood opposed to us and he nailed it to the cross. And when he did that, Paul says he stripped the powers and the principalities of their power. That even as he was publicly humiliated, he was humiliating the powers and the principalities that come to us and say, you're not good enough. That's what happened at the cross. It's why we get, when we become a Christian, we get a new name, we get new strength, new confidence, new power, and we can finally rest because we no longer have to earn the smile of God. And now we can bear fruit. I think it's a fascinating image to think about bearing fruit. Yes, that's a marriage metaphor. So there's fruit that needs to be born through union with Christ, the fruit of a holy life that delights to give our husband everything because he gave us everything. And that's Isaiah 54, that passage we did as the call to worship. 
you will not suffer disgrace. Think, he says, basically, the Lord will call you back. I don't know what you think about grace, but this is what grace is. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit, a wife who married young only to be rejected. Can you identify with being rejected? The Lord can. My friend Scott Rowley likes to say, the Lord knows what it's like to be in a bad marriage because he's married to you. <laughs> but he, he chose it willingly. He did. He actually put your first husband to death so that he could marry you. Strong. Yeah. Well, this metaphor, the marriage metaphor, also guards us against two errors. And some of you might have been even wondering if I was falling into one of these errors, I suspect. The two errors are legalism and antinomianism. Legalism is thinking that you can do enough of the right things or else you can kind of qualify or even add extra laws that make you feel good about your obedience. Antinomianism is saying it doesn't really matter. If God loves me, it doesn't matter how I live. Now, I don't know what kind of relationships you have, but if you have relationships where people are like, I love you so much, I don't care how you live, that's not a real relationship, right? Nobody that loves you says that. Nobody, right? So what, what he's saying here is really interesting. Paul never says that the law is dead. He says that we died to the law, therefore we're no longer married to it. But Paul does not say the law is bad or that the law is dead. As a matter of fact, the law is still alive. But what happens is the law is now the way that we can order our responsive love to God. That's why Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. You don't have to wonder what would Jesus do. Jesus kept the law always, and he asks us to do that. And we'll talk more about that with the rest of Romans 7, right? But the law is still relevant. It's just not our master. But Jesus says, this is how I want to be loved. And I'll tell you, being married 24 years, which we just celebrated our 25th anniversary yesterday. Yeah. It's, it's really helpful. Well, I'll say two things. Number one, um, don't assume that you know how the other person wants to be loved. And even if you thought you figured it out, you actually have to keep working on that because it changes. Um, but the other thing is, it's really kind to tell somebody how you receive love. You know, and Jesus does that. He doesn't leave us wondering. Like that's the heart of paganism. All these people like doing this and that kind of rituals, hoping, hoping that God might be pleased or that the gods might be happy with it. God doesn't leave us groping around in the dark. He says, this is how I want to be loved. Love me with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Pursue justice and mercy, right? So the, the, the marriage metaphor really helps us there. Um, being married to Christ is the final answer, this is Tim Keller, to the question, how can a Christian live, can a Christian live as he or he, she chooses? And the answer, of course, is no, because if you're married to Christ, it matters, right? Marriage is total commitment. This is another way this marriage metaphor, I think, helps us reframe the way we think of Christianity. It involves everything you have and everything you are. So what you do with your body matters. That's why Paul over and over in this section says, don't offer the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness. It's not just your heart that God cares about. He cares about all of you. He cares about all of you. The marriage metaphor also helps us understand sin more clearly. 
We've been divorced from the law. We've been married to Christ. That means that sin is adultery. It's not adultery, you know, against the law because you're no longer married to the law. But when you sin against Christ, now again, you do it all the time. And he knows what he signed up for and he did it anyway. God is not disappointed with what it's been like to be in a relationship with you. There's nothing in the Bible that says that. But he really wants you to be all you could be. He really wants you to be healed of all the dehumanizing stuff that's in your life. Because he loves you and he cares for you. And he is committed to bringing to completion the good work he began in you. Amen? Amen. Well, I've got some other little little things here. I'm not going to go through, but I I put them on here um, from this book from um, John Calhoun that I think is so helpful in thinking about how we can use this doctrine of being married to Christ. Um, Our our new marriage (laughs) means that we have relief, right? I'll just say this last thing. We'll close with this. Jesus married you when he saw you at your worst, Like, imagine if you were proposed to when you looked your worst. I think that would build in some real security into your heart. Right? I think actually one of the, like, one of the things that's so hard about dating is you're like, you're trying to, you're trying to, like, open up a little bit and let people see who you really are, but you're also afraid that if you do that, then they're going to run away. And it's just this mess. And Jesus says, I don't care. I see every bit of you and I love you madly and I want to marry you. You know? Now, that's probably not realistic for us, okay? But Jesus loves that way. And actually, he loves the people that you want to date that way. Or the people that you might marry one day, he loves them that way. And honestly, the only way that you actually sustain in marriage is if you ask God and he gives you, he's pleased to give you his love for that other person, right? Um, Tim Keller says, you know, you never marry the right person because the person you marry becomes about six other people over the course of a marriage. And so there has to be a better basis for deciding how to enter into marriage than just making the best decision, Because even if it was the right decision at the time, both of you change. So what do you do? Well, you trust that God's love for that other person will always be available to you. That's the only thing I think that can give you hope. He saw you at your worst. He still married you. It's another, I'll just say this. It's another reason why the purity culture movement was so insidious. Because it said that you had to keep yourself pure and then you'd have amazing sex that's a promise that isn't always true. But then beyond that, it said that the people who deserve that or get that are the people who kept themselves pure. What does the gospel say? You're not pure. You can't even dream of it. <laughs> but Jesus loves you anyway and married himself to you, died for you. That's the only thing that changes your heart. Not fear or hope of rewards that maybe aren't actually even realistic. All right, well, that's enough for tonight. We can do some more Romans 7 next week. Let's pray.